0: Hello, America, and happy Thursday. Happy chaotic Thursday. Yes, Capitol Hill is in utter chaos, not because of a protest, not because of a hearing, but because Republicans simply are unable to count their own votes and understand where they are in the process of finding a new speaker. A little while ago, Jim Jordan withdrew a request to have a third vote for speakership because he was about to lose more votes than the 22 he lost yesterday, or the 20 he lost on Tuesday. You have warring factions. It's not just four or five factions. It's seven, eight, nine factions that the House Republicans have devolved into. And then Jordan and Kevin McCarthy, the former or deposed speaker, came up with an idea. Why don't we just give Patrick McHenry, the current speaker pro tem, basically the placeholder, the ability to run the floor for two or three months. Now, I have been interviewing people on this show for several days about that idea into a person. They said, that's a disaster. Well, Kevin McCarthy thought it was a good idea, and it just blew up. The conference is now more angry than ever. Two-thirds of Republicans have indicated they will oppose it. So not only has the Jordan train slowed for a moment, the alternative of just putting a speaker that would require Democrat votes to get in has blown up on Republicans. There's utter chaos. There's utter disarray. That said... Oftentimes, some of the greatest strife brings some of the greatest resolutions. And at some point, there will be a clarity moment. I personally think a likely scenario is that the Republicans now are aware that there's no one inside their caucus among the 220 plus members that they have who can actually become the speaker. But you don't need a current lawmaker to be the speaker. You can go outside. You know, and that, that came up the other day with Donald Trump. Donald Trump's not the guy. He's running for president. He's got four trials. He doesn't want it. He wants to become president. He wants to stay singularly focused on that. But what if someone like Elise Eldon came in? He is like Switzerland. He can talk to the moderates in New York and the Freedom Caucus as far out as Arizona and everybody in between. He doesn't have a long-term ambition to be in Congress. That's why he left to run for New York governor. But he also is a guy that has shown toughness on Russia collusion, on Ukraine impeachment. He's a guy who could actually go into the negotiations with the Senate and get something that Republicans can say reward the constituents that put him in power, unlike the last few deals, which have gotten, well, diddly-widdly nothing. This is Let that come in. I think at the end of the day, Lee Zeldin may be the Switzerland with a sword that a warring Republican caucus needs. Just from doing my reporting today, I've picked up a lot of sentiments that that is moving as a possibility. We'll see if the Republicans seize upon that. All right. We've got a great show for you today. Mike Huckabee, that's right, the former governor of Arkansas, man, I, I think is really one of the most thoughtful in inspirational and witty conservatives in America. So many conservatives have lost the art of. Using a good joke, a good quip to make a point without always being mean and shrill. Mike Huckabee does it with not only grandeur, he makes you laugh, but he also makes you think. And he's going to help put into perspective all that's going on in Capitol Hill. We're going to kick the show off with him. We're going to turn to James Carafano, one of the great national security minds. He's a top security thinker at the Think Tank Heritage Foundation. He's going to talk to us about something that broke a little while ago, China, China. According to the United States Pentagon, now has five thousand nuclear warheads, way more than we knew. That's a shocker, and another reminder, like the issue we bring about on the show every day, that China is aggressively moving to supplant the United States, and we're sitting around having fights about things like transgender soldiers and electric vehicles, and we're not actually having the. No, listen, there's a moment for those, and they're, but they shouldn't be the primary focus when China, Russia. Iran and others are acting so badly on the world stage and our own economy is in danger of stagflation. And so James Carfano is going to put that in perspective. And then we're going to finish up with a guy I can't go more than two weeks not having on the show because he's just a fount of common sense. Tim Stewart from the U.S. Oil and Gas Association. We're going to talk about all the latest developments in the energy Realm because energy security is national security Energy security is economic security And anyone who has studied the inflation That erupted on Joe Biden's watch Knows that it began with the rise, the constriction of energy supplies in the United States and the rise of energy prices, and it just kept going on. And now, to get rid of that inflation, well, now they're putting on high interest rates, which is now making not only the home ownership dream a pipe dream, it's making borrowing for the United States government and businesses so much more expensive. And that will have a profound effect on not just the next few years, but the next few generations. Of America. So Tim Stewart will bring that all into perspective. And of course, Tim Stewart has that great program, Hands Off My Stove, allowing Americans to band together and work to talk with the state, local, and federal governments to say, don't regulate my favorite appliances out of existence. Don't make them too expensive for me give me the choice to decide what goes in my home. That's what handsoffmystove.com is and we'll talk about that in the third block. All right. We got a great show. There's no reason for me to talk too much when that much firepower is on tap. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, former Arkansas governor, great television host and preeminent conservative thinker Mike Huckabee up next right after these messages. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. As we've been talking, a very consequential moment for all of America, a very consequential moment for the conservative movement in the Republican Party. What's playing out in Capitol Hill, what's playing out in the Middle East, what's playing out in Russia, Ukraine, are defining moments and how conservatives respond to them. We'll define a new generation of the conservative movement. And I thought I'd bring in one of the greatest conservative thinkers I've known in my 35 year career as a journalist. He is a man who speaks truth. He has lots of wisdom. He sees the big picture, even when a lot of people are stuck around the trees in the bottom of a forest. He's the former governor of Arkansas, the host of one of the great TV shows in America. He is former governor, Mike Huckabee. Governor, good to have you back on, sir.
1: John, it's a pleasure. But listen, after that buildup, I'm afraid to say anything because I cannot possibly
0: live up to the introduction. But thank you very I much. I object, Your Honor. I know you're going to live up to it. I know you are. <laughs> uh, these are really consequential moments. And I was thinking last night, uh, you know, maybe at different times at the founding of this country or at great moments of Civil War, World War I, World War II, 9-11. There are people at that moment felt that way, too. But how Republicans and conservatives respond to the challenges on the table right now, really going to define what conservative stands for in the 21st century. How important is it? Why don't you, starting with the the battle over speaker, what's really playing out there?
1: I think in many ways it is a power play and some of it is not ideological, but there is an ideological tinge to it. Uh, There are people who want to make sure that Washington does not significantly change And by change, I'm not talking about from the left, the right, the Democrats, Republicans, liberals and conservatives. They don't want the donor class to lose the power that the donor class has. And there are many members of Congress that are there because of the donor class. They have remained there because of the donor class. They're in power and they have positions because of the donor class. And the last thing they can afford is for there to be a a downgrading or even a demise of the donor class. And when people talk about the uniparty, they say there's Republicans, there's Democrats, but really there's a uniparty. And they speak of the deep state and how Washington is is broken. What they really do speak of is that the process is not really controlled by members of Congress. It's controlled by the people who pay for the members of Congress. And many people, even good people, decent people, I'm not trying to castigate them as evil or corrupt, but they got there because there were people who helped them financially through their contributions. And now those people are going to say, you know, we helped you get here. Here's a little favor we need of you. And it is that system that is, has really broken the country. And so uh, it, it's one of the reasons that so many people in the Washington sewer hate Donald Trump so much because he doesn't owe those people anything. He didn't get there by their help. He is not a wholly owned subsidiary of the D.C. K Street donor class Washington sewer. And that's in many ways what I'm seeing play out here. I find it interesting that uh, Joe Biden and many of the Democrats will talk about these MAGA extremists. And, you know, they're they're not even thinking about what they're saying. MAGA stands for simply make America great again. You would think that most Americans, including members of Congress, would want America to be great all the time, not again, but never ceasing to be great. So you just wanna ask them from a just honest language standpoint, what is it you do want America to be? If you don't want it to be great, you want it to be mediocre? Um, You know, Maybe they should change theirs to mama, make America mediocre again, (laughs) because that seems to be what they want and they can just cry mama all day and all night and there you would have the basic difference between Uh, the, the populist, if you will, the Donald Trump supporters like me, and then you would have those folks who both Democrat and Republican just want to go back to the good old days where everybody patted each other on the back. They all had a good time, had cocktails together. And the country went to hell. Yeah,
0: that is a dynamic that really is at work right now. There's an interesting dynamic when you take a look at which people are holding out on Jim Jordan from the Republican Party. Many of them are on the Appropriations Committee, the purse string people. And I think there is a fear that Jim Jordan might do actually what he says he wants to do, which is shrink some of this spending, which, you know, has grown two trillion dollars a year just since the beginning of the pandemic. Is that Appropriations Committee team? Is that part of that? deep-rooted class that doesn't want to give up the purse strings, even if that's the right thing to do for America? I I
1: think there's no doubt that that's a part of it. Uh, If it's all of it, I don't know. But I do think that there are people who fear that there could be a level of transparency that we simply don't have and haven't had in probably forever, where the citizens can know exactly when they watch the votes, who voted for what, how did that money actually get used? It's a messy process, and it's made more messy if we knew what it was. So I, I'm confident that you're right, John. There, there's some anxiety about having to do uh, single-issue uh, appropriation bills rather than throw it into a big, omnibus bill, because then it's easy for a member of Congress to say, you know, there were a lot of things about that bill that were horrible, but I had to vote for the soldiers. Well, who wants to vote against the soldiers? Who wants to vote against Uh, grandma's social security check says nobody. So if you wrap it all up into a package, then you're basically eating a fajita that's already been pre-made and you don't even get to decide what goes into that tortilla. That's what I think Congress is uh, really afraid of uh, seeing happen and what they're trying to protect. Let's make sure that we just get packaged meals and you vote on the package and you don't get to go through the line and pick out the ingredients you want. Yeah.
0: On the flip side of this, Democrats have their own problem, particularly as it relates to Israel and the Middle East, the anti-Semitism, the anti-Israel streak that has really grown in the progressive wing of the party for a very long time, particularly in college campuses and into the early new members of Congress. It's really getting exposed by this extraordinary, heinous terrorist attack. Democrats have a difficult road ahead of them as well. Their president and a big part of their party are not on the same page right now.
1: Well, and thank goodness they're not all on the same page because that would make the entire party anti Semitic and anti Jew. What a ridiculous thing it is to see Rashida Tlaib scream and yell and ball her brains off uh, and blame Israel for what happened. And apparently it didn't happen actually at the hospital, but in the parking lot. And all the evidence video, audio, um, geolocation evidence shows that this was not an Israeli airstrike, even though the media rushed to say that it was. And I'm thinking, my gosh, whatever happened to that uh, old view from the Chicago Sun-Times where uh, the longtime editor said, if your mother says she loves you, kick her in the shins and make her prove it. You know, that used to be the standard in journalism. You took nothing at face value. You demanded to get more than one source, and you didn't run with it until you could verify it. Well, this was Hamas, a terrorist organization that had butchered babies and burned grandmothers in their wheelchairs. And we were to take their word for it, that they said it was an Israeli airstrike that killed a thousand people. Therefore, it must be true, because who could doubt them? Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, the media's. Is- performance. Well, for much of the last six years, the media's performance has really betrayed the trust of this country. And yesterday was just another example. You take a look at the way the headline flipped in the New York Times over two hours without any real recognition that the Times was in some way responsible for those headline flips. It was a thing to watch. It was very, very concerning. There is a lot of other dynamics at work in the country right now. And one of them is that President Trump continues to rise in the poll. It doesn't matter how many lawsuits, how many indictments, how many investigations the Democrats throw at him. Americans are embracing him, perhaps in a larger way than they did in 2016 or 2020. What is the dynamic in our Americans trying to send an implicit message to the Democratic regime in Washington that putting your opposition leader in prison on trial in the courtroom is not the way we do things in America?
1: More and more Americans are being shocked by the fact that you have a sitting president who, uh, let's say, if he legitimately won the election in 2020, um, is now doing everything he can to make sure that his opponent um, is unable to even get to the point of being on the ballot. And that, that's just unheard of in any free country, certainly in America. We've never had that before. But the bigger picture probably, John, is that the longer Joe Biden stays in office, the more people can see the contrast between the effectiveness of the policies of the Trump administration and of the Biden administration. Uh, Inflation, higher interest rates mean that a family wanting to buy a home uh, will pay maybe for a $400,000 home, $1,000 a month more, a month more than they would have paid because of the highest interest rates we've had in 40 years. And add to that You've got an inflation rate, but nobody's paycheck is keeping up with that inflation rate. So people are losing ground. And I don't care how many times Corrine Jean-Pierre goes to the podium and tells us everything's coming up roses. She still ain't Ethel Merman and it ain't coming
0: up roses. (laughs) That's right. And people see it. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Oh, my gosh. Have you ever seen a White House press secretary like the current one? I certainly haven't. No.
1: One of my favorite radio talk show hosts is a guy named Dan Mandis in Nashville, Tennessee, and he's got a great nickname for uh Corinne Jean-Pierre. He calls her Coringe Jean-Pierre.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think
1: <laughs> I wish I'd thought of it. It's it's perfect.
0: <laughs> it's good because yeah, you do sometimes you're listening and you know it's so bad you're like, "Oh my god, I feel bad for her saying that. No, don't say that." But it really is an extraordinary moment to watch, and I think it's emblematic of the Biden administration's communications strategy at large. They, they often are a muddled mess. Whether it's the president's words, uh, the Congress uh, people's word, particularly in Israel, and uh, and the podium, it's it's a complete mess. I want to step back for a second because I think you, you have great perspective in terms of the moment that Republicans find themselves in. When you look at the core sentiments of America, a vast majority of Americans, including Democrats, think the country's headed in the wrong direction. They're worried about spending. They're worried about security. They're worried about the border. All the dynamics could not be better for a Republican landslide in 2024. The Republicans are struggling with their one third leadership or ownership of Washington, the House. They have an indicted, four-time indicted, leading nominee, almost certainly to get the nomination. What is the key for Republicans to come together and to have the sort of election like Ronald Reagan had in 1980? Because the dynamics of the country look very much like 1980, but the Republican Party doesn't quite seem to have the grasp on it yet. What's the key to getting the right strategy in place for 2024?
1: It's a simple message. They've got to keep it simple. I think in the 2022 election... Um, and I like Kevin McCarthy, I thought he had a tough job ahead of him, but uh, he put together a 17-point plan. My view was it's too many points. You've got 14 points too many. Make it a simple three-point plan. This is about gasoline, groceries, and an open border. Keep it simple. Make sure people understand that the cost of their fuel, which is the cost not just of getting to work and back, but that adds to the cost of the bread they buy, of the uh, fruit and vegetables they buy because they have to be shipped. Well, shipping something costs money. And whether it's something you order from Amazon or take off the shelf yourself at the local store, the price is up in part because of transportation costs. That's gas. Groceries, 17% increase. That means the beans and the rice, uh, they're up as much as is the steak uh, you know, and the, the glazed ham. So it's not just that a few things costs more. Everything costs more. That hits a family right in the proverbial breadbasket. And then the open border is a threat, not only in the drug and human trafficking, but it's a threat to our wages. Because let's imagine for a moment that a lot of these people aren't coming in just for free education, free health care, free place to live and staying in a hotel in New York. They honestly want to come here to work. But if they get here and they're illegal, the only kind of work they can do is under the table, which means they will do that work for less money than the American worker who's paying taxes on it. So the only people who win are the employers who hire them, who get to pocket that money since they're not paying their portion of the social security on those people. And the the, the workers who don't pay their taxes, they're not paying payroll taxes, they're half of it either. So they're actually gonna net more money than the person who gets paid more. The result, American workers are gonna lose their jobs. And if they keep a job, they'll be paid less because the illegal immigrants drive the wages down for all workers across the board. Yeah.
0: That's a great point. That's why so many first-generation legal immigrants oppose illegal immigration, because they see the impact on their ability to get an honest living wage. And it shows up in the polling, but it hardly ever gets talked about in Washington. It's an amazing dynamic. Sir, one last question. I know you're real busy. I just want to ask this question. There is, in the great history of the Republican Party, an ability to not only be serious about the issues, but sometimes have just enough wit to laugh and have fun. And you do that so well. But a lot of Republicans sometimes have lost the ability to be gracefully funny sometimes. They're so dug into the battle. But you do it every day You're on your show, in your Twitter feed. I, I sometimes go to your Twitter feed just to get a, a good snicker because there's a wit to it. But there is a value, even in these serious moments, of sometimes addressing things through the gift of humor and wit. Is that a lost skill in a lot of the political generation of today?
1: Oh, without a doubt, John, it really is. And, and a lot of I'd say 90 percent of the Twitter's uh, Twitter feed I do, virtually every tweet is just basically tongue in cheek. But the reaction that I get from it tells me that there are a lot of people who wake up in the morning who take themselves way too seriously <laughs> and they honestly need to sort of just step back, take a deep breath and remember that there was a world before they came and there will be one after they leave. I I, I think there's a great need for a revival of the sense of humor. But let me also say this, the best way to deal with some of our political opponents is with ridicule. And ridicule is the greatest tool in the world because it's not an angry thing. And there's nothing more effective in knocking down a political opponent who is so full of himself or herself then is ridicule, and it's the one weapon that almost is um, just unbeatable. So I think we have to keep using it, especially when things deserve to be ridiculed. It's like when I'm looking at the squad and I'm watching them and they're pretending to be so overwhelmed, uh, yeah, and you just want to say to them, "Hey, you know you might want to save a few of those tears for the people that Hamas killed." And remember that every bit of the conflict that's going on in Gaza right now could end in three hours if Hamas let the hostages go, released all of the uh, people that are being held, including Americans, and then would surrender their weapons and say, we give up. We are no longer going to try to run Gaza. Everybody wins. I think it's been said wisely, and I'll just add this. Um, If Hamas were to lay down their weapons there would be peace. If Israel were to lay down its weapons, there would be no more Israel.
0: That is so well put. And that is really, truly the dynamic at work there. For anyone who wants to understand how good Governor Huckabee's wit is, you just have to go to his Twitter feed and check out his response to John Fennerman being on television, saying that America is not spending its brightest people to Washington. I don't want to ruin it for you. Just go check out what the governor wrote. That's the sort of humor that Ronald Reagan and great political leaders of the past were able to use and, and weaponize in a brilliant way. That was a good one. Sir, we are always blessed when you come on this show. Uh It's a great honor to have you. And thanks for making sense of what's a very crazy, turbulent world right now.
1: John, you just keep doing what you're doing, because uh, one of the really great examples of true, genuine, authentic journalism is John Solomon. And all of us are grateful for that. Keep it up, my friend.
0: Thank you, sir. I greatly appreciate those words and more than you'll ever know. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Folks, don't go anywhere. James Carafano, one of the great national security experts for the Heritage Foundation, on that new and jarring report about Chinese nuclear warheads and all the other disarray on the world stage that has unfolded on Joe Biden's watch, including what we can expect from Joe Biden's speech tonight. Why would he tie Israel and Ukraine together? James carafano has got a provocative answer to that. It's a factually based answer, but you've probably not thought of it before. That's why we're bringing him on. We'll have him next after these commercial messages. Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax advantaged, aligned with your values and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org justnews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Just News. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. So much going on and while we're focused on the Capitol Hill and the inability to get the next speaker and all of the different things happening in the economy, the world is more inflamed than it's ever been and there are just so many red blinking warning signs across the country. One of them just occurring this morning when the Pentagon announced that China has massively grown its nuclear arsenal in recent months, like a couple of years up to 5,000 nuclear warheads a number way larger than anyone expected. I thought we'd bring in But I think one of the wisest voices in the national security space today, he's a senior counselor to the president and the E.W. Richardson fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And he's our good friend, James Carafano. James, good to have you back on. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot to start with. I want to turn to China, but there's a little spot news tonight. President Joe Biden back from his trip to Israel going to address the nation tonight. He's going to apparently tie Israel and Ukraine together. What should we expect and what are the warning signs for you? Well, I
2: think the the exciting news is Biden can stay up, you know, to give a speech at past it. eight that's, o'clock, huh? <laughs> But uh, look, I, I think my one problem with the with the president's foreign policy from the beginning in Ukraine has really been um, to not have a bipartisan perspective on this. He's, in fact, he's gone out of his way to pit Republicans. Against Republicans on this, and really kind of burn through a, a lot of goodwill. Because if you've looked at every one of the supplemental security packages that we've had so far, there's like okay, X spending for Ukraine, and then a spending for a whole bunch of other junk that Republicans just hate. And then on top of that, nothing to deal with stuff like border security. And yet, if is if you vote against this package, then you're you're pro-Russian or you're pro-Putin or something. And now you know we're getting an instant replay of this. We're going to package. Israeli aid and uh, Ukrainian aid together, again, to make it more difficult for Republicans to 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 have views on these things. And, and again, I'm sure there'll be other junk in there, which the president will do, and there won't be any border security money. So it, again, rather than trying to be – like if you look at FDR during World War II, where he really tried – to say, what do we do we need to, do to keep Republicans and Democrats together to fight this war? Biden has done exactly the opposite. He's framed everything as, is how can I actually use this foreign policy to pit Republicans against Republicans? And so I think it's been, been terrible leadership. And, of course, the problem is, is the irony here, of course, is if there was just a plain Israel package, here's the reality of what would happen. They'd get almost virtually every Republican vote. And they'd be embarrassed about how many Democrats yeah, defect. didn't vote for it. And so that's why the president wants to do it this way, because Republicans have to vote for Ukraine. The Democrats have to vote for Ukraine because it's their president, their war. Right. So he wants to hide the problem in his own party by by doing it this way. It's, it's just crass politics and it's terrible presidential leadership. Yeah,
0: and that gets to the larger issue too, which is the Democrats have had an Israel problem for a long time, and they often keep it under thumb. They do a little reprimand here and there for one of the squad members for intemperate comments. But the truth of the matter is, there's a large new generation of liberals that don't support Israel. They think Palestinians are the victims of an apartheid state, which, by the way, is ludicrous when you look at the definition of apartheid. ADL clearly calls it ludicrous. But this moment is really perilous for the Democratic Party and its longtime ties to the Jewish community, to Jewish constituency in America. A long time coming, but now it's happening. How bad can it potentially be for Democrats to have so much of their flank exposed on being really anti-Israel, and in some cases, even anti-Semitic?
2: So we should be clear, it's, it's not a bipartisan problem. Right? There, there are anti-Semitics across the political spectrum. They're, they're Republicans or anti-Semitic. But this is different on the left, because on the left, it's become institutionalized. And the reason why it's become institutionalized is the same narratives and tropes that are used to attack Israel are, is the same Marxist-Leninist narratives that, that go across the larger uh, uh, progressive movement. This idea about um, occupation, power, imperialism, the evils of whiteness, and all this stuff—and it's so all-encompassing—that you find people on the left who've t- completely embraced this woke ideology actually now on the streets fighting for something which actually is is antithetical to who they are. So, for example, you see—you know—members of the LGBTQ plus community out you know, screaming support for Palestine, because that's part of the leftist narrative, when if they actually lived in Palestine, they would be arrested and sent to prison for 10 years for who they are. So it's it's almost nonsensical. But 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 it's become institutionalized. And so the problem is when you have true anti-Semites, I mean, okay, there are people who are against Israel because they just don't really know the facts or whatever. It's just, this is the narrative. All of our friends are going on protests, protest, we'll protest too. But then there are people that are truly in their root of their evil soul, like the squad, truly anti-Semitic, people that truly actually hate Jews. They really, really do. It's not just about being fashionable and waving, uh, a flag, you know, for Pride Day. They really in the things actually think that killing Jews is just, just, it's just fine, and they deserve it, right? And what ha- what does the left do? They are literally hiding and protecting these people because they have to. And, and no. Nowhere is this more seen than the Anti-Defamation League and just kind of watch this torture, right? So the ADL, the part of the leftists, they love being left, it's fun. They get to go to all cocktail parties. They're out, you know, you, live, you know, waving the pride flag and all that stuff. And we're like, dude, you're in bed with people who are anti-Semitic. And now the ADL finds that the very people that they've been loving and protecting and calling the rest of us racist and hateful people – these are people just screaming for the death of Jews. And so the ADL is like, oh, wait, no, I'm not down with that. You know, OK, well, then you shouldn't be sleeping
0: with these people. Yeah, it's a really great point the, the visions and the the incongruities of a large amount of the liberal or limousine liberal elitist circles are really getting exposed, I think, in so many different Ways and you know, there's going to be a moment where there'll be a vote for censure of one of these members for things they've said or done. And it really put a really difficult light on the Democratic party. It's probably long coming. I want to ask about the breeding ground for this anti Semitism because it's pretty clear now just from the what's played out at Harvard and UPenn and all the the universities basically created one or two generation of young Americans who seem to have both a negative perception of the United States, they're down on their own country and then clearly been trained to think that somehow Israel is the oppressor and Palestinians are the good people in this struggle. Is there a moment of reckoning that comes just from a security perspective at these universities for allowing, you know, maybe 10, 12, 14 years of students to get indoctrinated in a large way through their own classes and their own ecosystems?
2: Well, this is this is an issue that we've been con- concerned about for some time, and, and it's the the double evil here. So, first of all, anti-Semitism is a poison that corrupts civil society and civic institutions, and and so we are destroying the fabric of our very own coherence. And why, literally, the you know the people that are pushing the absolute worst of these divisive philosophies and critical race theory and anti racism and, and black lives matter are the same people who are running to the streets to you know cry, you know, you know, kill kill the Jews. It's 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 poisonous to the fabric of who we are. And so it's not even just about Jews. It's it's become a, a poison that's destroying our civil society, our educational institutions, um uh, you know, even corporate America. It 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 is but it's also created an enormous national security challenge because it is threatening our support for literally one of the most important allies we have, which is Israel. And and look, this is very easy to explain. We're not the world's policemen, we're not the world's babysitter, we're not the world's nanny, but we are a global power with global interests and global responsibilities. And if we want to defend those things, we have to be able to go there to do that. It's like if you're on vacation and you run out of cash – you don't get in a plane and fly back to your bank. You go to an ATM and you take out cash. You know, if it, we, we need friends around the world so we can do the things we need to protect ourselves around the world, the stability of Europe is important to us. The stability of the greater Middle East is important to us. The stability of the Indo-Pacific is important to us. And what do we have in each of those parts of the world? We have a country that is absolutely dependable. It is our anchor. It's the one place we always go. We know we have friends. We always know we can operate with. They're going to help us out. And in, in Europe it's it's been England it's been England since 1917 in in the Indo-Pacific it's Japan in the Middle East it's Israel Israel went from being an active American altruism with the birth of Israel to actually being well we're not really sure whose side we want to be on here in the 40s but but during the Cold War we realized that as the Chinese, as the Russians were, the Soviets were trying to move into the Middle East the only country we could ever count on was Israel and so it has become the indispensable ally the country we can always count on if the if if israel goes down the region will burn and if the region burns we are not going to we are not going to not get burned right and people can say well we could become energy independent again but the reality is, is 20% of the world it's not blood for oil but 20% of the world's energy flows through the middle east if that shuts down it's global depression global finances go through the middle east global um aviation routes go through the middle east most most of the world's key maritime traffic goes through the suez canal this is not a part of the world that we want to burn to the ground and i'm not, and i'm not, i don't want to be the world's policeman but i'm i don't want to be stupid and and just like i you know i just like i i don't want to see the police station burn to the ground when i'm trying to keep the burglars out of my neighborhood i, I want israel to be standing tall and and i got to tell you there is never a worse time for us to turn our back on Israel. Iran is behind all of this. Hamas and Hezbollah are tools. They want a war against Israel because they want they they want Israel to be weakened. They want the United States to be humiliated, and then the work they're going to do is they are declare themselves a nuclear power right in the middle of, of the presidential election. Biden will be caught in a blind spot. A new president will walk in the door with a nuclear Iran. I mean, it would just be a nightmare scenario. So that's the stakes
0: here. Yeah, you, you've laid it out perfectly. There are so many things. When I came to Washington 35 years ago, there were certain truisms that no matter whether you talk to a Democrat or Republican, you heard. Uh, we don't want Russia and China ever to be pushed into a corner together because they would make a terrible alliance. We always stand by Israel, and uh, we need to keep Iran from nuclear capabilities. We have to defend Taiwan uh, against any aggression. Today, all of those dynamics are on steroids in the wrong direction against the interest of their. How has all that happened in such a short period of time on Joe Biden's watch? Why is it happening?
2: Well, you know, I can explain what happened to the modern Democratic Party. Um, It's changed. right? I mean, Israel used to be the one issue in the United States that was truly completely bipartisan. Democrat, Republican, didn't matter. So two things happen to the modern Democratic Party. One is, I mean, if you look at the American Jewish community, which, which a, a lot of them do vote Democrat, um, it has become more secular, um, more liberal. Uh, and you're much smaller. There are more Jews today in Israel than there are in the United States. And so... Many American Jews today are, are are actually out on the street protesting against Israel. I mean, so the the, it's, the American Jewish community has lost its way, uh, and and so that anchor of the Democratic Party has kind of evaporated, and then this woke ideology has literally embraced the Democratic Party, and so. It, Israel is no longer a bipartisan issue in the country. You have one party that a significant member of his party are, are if not outright anti-Semitic, are, are think that Israel is the problem, not the solution. Uh, and they think that support for Israel is wrong. And that, so that's the, the, we are two very different ships. You know, the, the, you know, well you and I are old enough to remember when you could say, uh, foreign, you know, Partisanship ended at the water's edge, right? Uh, because, and it wasn't because we all got along, but it was because if you looked at the Republican and Democratic parties, they were relatively diverse both geographically and ideologically, and you could find a Republican that was a super liberal and uh, and a Republican that was a, a you know a conser- you know a conservative. You could find a Democrat like you know Scoop Jackson, who is maybe the toughest hawk in in the Congress from and and uh, uh, uh and George McGovern who is so liberal he was the, the standard bearer of his you know party to get out of the war in Vietnam well you know since the 90s we've become very both political parties have become a lot less diverse and so the 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 democratic party is when it comes to real hard security issues and they're 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 just in a different place and and so we you know the American Republican Party day is let's be honest it's not a republican party it's a conservative party and that's part of the reason why we see this struggle with the house leadership on the hill is is the party's inability to to grasp the reality of who it is it is a conservative party a party that believes that foreign policy for example is made based on America's interests and that we should do things that are in our interests like like taking our alliance with Israel incredibly seriously, and not empowering you know, country, uh, in Iran, which is our enemy, actually giving them tens of billions of dollars so they could then underwrite basically a war against Israel. So Americans are faced with a real choice here. I, I mean, I'm not you know, we, don't, we agree on everything and everything, but, but these are two parties headed in two very, very different directions. And we're a 50-50 country, and they have to decide which kind of America we want. Because the Joe Biden America, right, he was, he was throwing Israel into the bus. He would, had no good for the government. You know, he was empowering Iran. Now the war starts, and all of a sudden, you know, he's supporting Israel. Well, that's, that's not sustainable.
0: I want to ask about foreign encouragement of some of these trend lines. We did a lot of work the other day looking at all the money that Arab nations have put into universities. Most of them, like Qatar, big supporters of Hamas. China, clearly been involved in in now even donating down to local school districts. Russia, for a long time, paying money to environmental groups to stop our fracking. Have our foreign enemies in some way used money and influence operations the last two decades to create these dynamics that have turned at least a part of the Democratic Party into sort of tools for their long-term interests.
2: Well, absolutely, but because they're following the classic Lenin-Marxist line. I mean, this was the strategy that the Soviet Union had, which is help your enemy defeat themselves.
0: Right. Division from within, right?
2: Right. And so this is, if you, at the root of all these things, equity, you know, all this stuff, all this nonsense, at the end of the day, it leaves American weaker. You guys get rid of your fossil fuels. Yeah, you should do that, Right. That's gonna we're gonna be way better off, right? Get rid you know, get rid of a society that that prize prizes innovation and success and achievement and hard work and instead insist everybody get everything for free. That's gonna make things way better. You know, pit Americans against Americans. Tell people that, you know, yeah, actually white Americans are not as good as you and they should be forcibly repressed. All this this all this is gonna create great outcomes, right? You know, it's going to destroy ourselves from within. But it's, you know, it reminds me of, remember the the Ghostbusters and, you know, when Gozer, the, the evil thing comes up and she goes to Bill Murray and she says, name the destructor. Like, and then the marshmallow guy shows up. It's like, you guys pick how you want to be destroyed. This is what the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and these Islamist radicals are doing to us, they're going to the American left and say, you pick how America should be destroyed. Do you want to destroy it by, by undermining responsible energy policy, or do you want to destroy it by, by weaponizing your government against its own people, or do you want to destroy it by you know, pitting Americans against Americans, or stupid foreign policy where you're enabling our enemies and you're beating up on our friends? You pick. And, and now we're picking like well, all of the above.
0: It is pretty amazing, and I do think that the big learnings for Americans is how much the foreign money is aligned with what the Democratic Party has moved towards that there almost is this unholy alliance between these foreign interests that want to divide America and the Democrats who are literally carrying out that mission. Day in and day out, including yesterday with the protest in the Cannon building. I want to turn to the report that came out this morning because it it is a red blinking alarm. And we don't, with the exception of Heritage, Heritage does amazing work on China all day long. You do particularly 5,000 nukes, maybe a 10,000 in the next decade. Way many more than I think people were expecting to hear from this DOD report and other signs of really aggressive posture by Beijing against Russian and Western interests. It seems like it's the number 25 story in The New York Times, but it should be the number one story for the whole world. What should we read into this, and where is China heading? Is China in a moment of aggression against us?
2: Uh, In a direct, in an absolute lie, China has always said, "Well, we just want nuclear weapons because the United States and the Chinese and the Russians have them, and we want the minimum number of nuclear weapons we need to de- deter and, and defend ourselves." So they said that eight years, you know, a decade ago, at, at exactly the time they started on the most ambitious nuclear weapons building program in modern history, um, at the very moment that Barack Obama was embracing a policy of. Global Zero, when we would get rid of nuclear weapons by the United States leading the way, not modernizing, get rid of our nuclear weapons, and then everybody else would follow us, that was exactly the moment that the Chinese started building up their nuclear weapons and So today what we have is the Chinese are going to have a nuclear arsenal that 's on par with the United States and the Soviet Union, so we're going to have three massively armed nuclear power, and we are in the process of now of having to reverse. Um, a you know a decade of policy that Obama started uh, where we weren't going to modernize our nuclear weapons, we weren't going to have a triad, we weren't going to have strategic deterrence, right? And now we're we've got to turn all that around, and and we have to turn it around at a time when Biden has run up the largest deficit in modern history, hamstringing the U.S. economy. It's it's. it's uh, even the Biden, you know, this is one thing, you know, you, you, you can't say Biden's done everything wrong. He, I mean, he does do things right. When it, you know, it's like the old, the old uh, Winston Churchill adage, when we've tried every other alternative, we'll do the right thing. I mean, even the Biden administration acknowledges today that we need a strong nuclear deterrent because they are faced with the brutal reality that the Chinese are getting ready to throw their weight around. And if we don't have a strategic deterrent to match that, you think they're going to be
0: nice to us? I, I don't think so. No. Yeah. Anyone who thinks that, exactly. They're doing it at their own peril. Last question for you. I think a lot of people have thrown around the term World War Three. Is it Europe? Is it Middle East? Is it above or is it China about to take aggression? Are we in danger of a global conflict or are these several regional conflicts that are going to test our long-term Capability of being, you know, the world's preeminent superpower. Do they come together in a larger conflict, or are they three separate ones that are just direct challenges to our longtime political and economic superiority?
2: Right. Well, well, there's always a danger of a global conflict, which is which is why the old adage of if if you want peace, prepare for war makes a lot of sense, and why undermining a strong American conventional and strategic deterrence is always stupid, um, but. But, having said that uh, if there's one Iran, Russia, and China all share one thing their their goals, their aspirations in the world can only be achieved, and they think it can only be achieved by greatly diminishing the United States, so they all want one thing they all want the United States to fail, but they also share something else they 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 want to win that war by not fighting a war with the United States, so they would prefer us and but but so the good news is they don't want World War III either. The the bad news is um, there are a lot of people that don't want wars that wind up starting wars. And so it, on the one hand, it's scary because we're creating conditions that could spin out of control. But on the other hand, we have to realize that, that um, people are looking to take advantage advantage of our weakness. And so the ironic answer is here, if you don't want World War III, if you don't want things to spin out of control, okay, you, you don't become a neocon, just go bombing everybody and trying to make the world safe for America. But, but you also stand up for your own interests. And this is the thing I think that we did right in the last administration. We did, they didn't start a lot of wars. They didn't, they didn't start any wars. They didn't do regime change. They didn't do nation building. They said, look, we're here to protect our interests and we can do that. And if you mess with me, dude, I'm going to slap you back down. And that worked. And we need a lot more of that now. Yeah,
0: that's a great point. It really is a good point. And I think that peace through strength, you know, it sounds like a simple axiom or maybe it's even overused now, but it really has a proven track record that when when our enemies think we're strong and firm and our convictions clear and our Terms we prevail, and when we're muddled and divisive and hopscotching around, they move with a lot of alacrity to fill the void of leadership. And it seems like we're in that moment. As you look out at the Republican field, do you see the next president of the United States somewhere in that field?
2: Well, look, I will say this you know, I, I do policy, not politics, so I don't. Yeah, but here's what I will say you know, I, I remember 2016. And uh, if you looked at the Republican field in 2016, these guys were all over the map. There was everything from the most isol- isolational isolationist to you know bomb the heck out of everybody, and on domestic policy and on foreign policy. I think the field is much much tighter. Uh, I, I, I like. I mean, I th- I think the reality is is the modern American Republican Party is a conservative party, uh, and that the one thing that anybody that would get the nomination, anyone who would get the Republican nomination for president. They would be a president that recognizes that their job, when it comes to foreign policy, is to protect the vital interests of the United States. And so I, I think, and I think that stands again, not a political guy, in stark contrast to what we have on the other side. I mean, we, we have a president who believes that the most important things are climate change and LGBT rights, and that's what foreign policy is all about. If there is a Republican president, they're going to believe that their job is to protect the vital interests of America. So that, I think there's a real choice there. And I don't even know who's on the ticket. Don't think it matters. I think it's that story.
0: And there is a real homogeny of really what the approach is and use of power is. And I think the big change is when I came here and really before I got to Washington for much of the last 60 years, defining the American interest was the first step and then implementing a foreign policy. You define the interest and you you implement American policy based on that interest. And today the Democrats define the ideological interest and then they build a foreign policy around it. And the American interest has really lost. It's hard when you look at the foreign policy documents to define the American interest for many of the things that Democrats advocate for. Just that change could be significant, can it?
2: Right. And this is what I love about it. And this is why like, you know, so people have different views on Ukraine among conservatives. Like, why do we care? That's healthy. The fact that we want to sit and argue and debate what's the interest and you know, what we should do in Ukraine versus what we should do in Taiwan, that's, that's healthy. That, that means you're a real thinking party that, that you care enough to argue about and you, and you argue around the right terms. What's best for us?
0: Looks just like our founding fathers.
2: I'm cool with where we are. And I think the other side not politically, but ideologically, and and the opposite of, of this is not a debate, but, you know, it's a debate between people who believe that American policies, both domestic and foreign, should be based on what's in the best interest of American citizens, and people that believe that somehow this should be done from a global perspective, whether it's, you know, being a and bombing the world in in the submission, or thinking that we should have the UN run everything. This is the difference between people who think that human flourishing comes from the community deciding for itself, what's in the best interest of itself, and people thinking, that no, we have to think about the greater global good here.
0: Pretty clear differences uh, between the – perhaps more stark differences in any time in our lifetime between what foreign policy and security policy is when you're a Democrat versus a Republican. It really is stark and – I think you said at some point earlier, it's almost like they're in two different worlds. And I think that's true that we're literally in two different worlds right now. But that gives voters a very clear choice of which way they want to go in 2024 and going forward. James, it's always an honor. You are one of the smartest people I've ever read, talked to, or followed in the security space. And I think today, with everyone feeling so uncomfortable about the state of the world, it's great to have that sort of strategic thinking about where the fixes are. And you, at, you and the great folks at Heritage are, are putting together some of the best policy ideas and policy prescriptions of anyone in the country right now. So thanks for your time, today. I'm really grateful. Thanks, my friend. All right, folks. Hold on to your gas stove. Protect the gas grill. Make sure you like your ceiling fan. Tim Stewart's going to tell you about all the efforts to regulate those out of existence and give us a sense of where gas and oil prices are going with the Middle East conflict now raging between Israel and Hamas. We'll have that next in the third block, right after these messages. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote, it's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, Visit AMAC, justnews slash Just News to become a four-year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free Social Security and Medicare guidance, money-saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale, four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at amac.us A-M-A-C justnews. That's amac.us forward slash justnews. Angie's List is now Angie, A-N-G-I, the nation's largest home services marketplace. And they're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project is, big or small, indoor or outdoor, Come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. That's what you want, right? I'm uh, thinking about building out my basement In my cabin, I've been perusing Angie looking for just the right contractor to get it done the way my wife and I want it done. Now, Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and right in your neighborhood. That's important, right? You can do comparative shopping. Get started today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I or download the app today. The app and the website are free to use. Angie.com or the Angie app. Go check it out today. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. We have been talking all day about the world in such turmoil. One of the places where the consequence of the turmoil is going to continue to hit home, very close to home, is in energy security, energy prices. An unstable Middle East always results in unstable energy prices or rising energy prices. And where alliances now? Joe Biden pushing Saudi Arabia and Iran to talk together. Boy, that's not a great idea. Hey, well, let's give the bad guys in Venezuela more oil. That happened with Joe Biden today. I want to bring in one of our great experts on this. He is the president of the U.S. Oil Gas Association. He's our good friend, Tim Stewart, and he'll make sense of some of this. Tim, great to have you back
3: on the show. John, thanks for having me. It's always an interesting time, isn't it?
0: It is. It is. Uh, uh, I, w- I use the word consequential, and I feel like sometimes it's overused, but right now it feels so fitting. Let's start with the Middle East, uh, a, a, a war in Israel, Arab partners, maybe a shifting alliances right before our eyes. The Saudi Arabia-Iran talks really caught a lot of people off guard. Tell us the impact. First, what you see in the Middle East and the impact it could have on energy supplies.
3: Sure. You know, I think whenever you have a conversation with with anybody about the Biden energy policy and foreign policy, you have to begin with an acknowledgement. You know, kind of like on the liberal college campuses where they start every meeting with, we acknowledge that we're sitting on such and such indigenous people's lands or something like that. I think you have to begin every conversation. Do you have a
0: new one for Biden?
3: <laughs> I, well, we do. All right? I've got one for got one for the administration, which is I I wish I wish it was mine, but it actually goes to former Secretary Robert Gates. Remember him? You know, he in in twenty fourteen he said something. He wrote in his book. It was very interesting. He said about Joe Biden, he said that, that Joe Biden has been on the wrong side of every national security and foreign policy decision for his entire 40 years in public office. And that's, you, you see that unfold this week. It's just been, it's just been amazing to watch as somehow we've gone from the Abraham Accords to Middle East War. We went from Iranian sanctions to a $6 billion transfer. We've gone from energy independence to depleted oil reserves. You know, it's just, and this just happened in 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 sort of record time. Three years where we've had such as upheaval, this change, and you'd, you'd listen to him talk about Venezuela this week. You know. It's kind of like this dating game dictator edition, you know, (laughs) it's like he's trying to just trying to decide which dictator he wants to date, you know, uh, dictator number one, I'm a Mexican cartel. Tell me how you support my human trafficking with your oil revenues type thing. It's really hard to figure out. It's it's a challenge, but there's a lot of things we can dig into here. So but that's my acknowledgement. I'll start with that. How about that?
0: Uh, That is a pretty good thing. It's like a really bad game of The Bachelor, isn't it? And uh, the dating contestants are pretty damn scary right now.
3: Um, yeah, it, it is. You know, on that so that scary thing, I've, I've spent i I've, you know spent the week on Capitol Hill talking to members of Congress just about other things, and it it is interesting this this Israeli situation, this this Hezbollah, this Hamas situation, what what Iran is doing. This is very much on their minds. You know, even with all the other speaker and everything else. We, I mean, I was told several times that we're in, this is 1967. It's, since the 1967, this most precarious position we have. You know. And, and you, you look at what, how Iran is playing this thing out. They've been conducting raids in the Persian Gulf for weeks now and seizing oil tankers and things like that. And, you know, the U.S. Navy, it's, it's going to tax our ability to maintain that free flow of oil uh, through the Strait of Hormuz. You know, that's been a priority for 70 years. Um, it's you know it is really interesting because oil is not the only commodity that flows through this Strait. You got LNG from Qatar, you know, which is they're the largest behind the U.S. and that's got to get to Europe somehow. Uh, and so, both Europe and Asia. And so, this is just a really, really complex and sticky situation from energy policy and energy markets. Yeah,
0: yeah, it, it really is. Uh, price pressure upward—the most likely outcome if these dynamics stay in place, right?
3: Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think it just it will always, whenever there's this uh, threat of shipping disruptions coming out of the strait, that always puts upward pressure on oil prices. Uh, and it's, you know, that's going to impact everybody, including the United States. You saw a blip of that a day or two ago. Um, we're now at 87. You know, we started the week, you know, up and down. And, uh, uh, but again, it does. It puts a, it puts this pressure on your national ga- gas price. This is a powder keg, I think, that threatens energy security from from all of the major economic powers. You know, it's not just the United States, it's Europe and Asia. And it's a huge risk to global security. So we've got to pay attention to this. As you mentioned, Russia's loving this one. You know, China's loving this one. So that's yeah, scary.
0: And the the administration strategy and I, I literally can't understand it, but I definitely can describe it in this way. Uh, We are pushing global energy consumers to buy dirtier oil from dirty regimes. Russia, Venezuela, Iran, clearly some of the beneficiaries are getting a lot higher prices for their oil, and their oil is worse, and they're bad actors, and we're cutting off increasingly any chance of uh, generating energy supply from our own resources. Am I overstating that, or is that really the dynamic that's in play right now?
3: No, that's, that really is the dynamic. And it, again, it's to our earlier point, which is choose your dictator. Choose which one, you want, which one you want to work with. Iran produces about 3 million barrels a day of crude and exports about a million barrels a day. Okay, If the U.S. were to actually... And the U.S. has had sanctions on Iranian oil, and they largely ignored them until 10 days ago. And by ignoring those sanctions, allowing Iranians to put more crude into the system, Iran was making an extra billion and a half or $2 billion a month of walking, of walking around money, you know, and and what what do you do with that? Well, you don't build hospitals. You fund Hamas.
0: You help Hamas and Hezbollah. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, and and that's and and Venezuela is the same thing. Both of them are, as to your point, they produce very, very dirty crude. The interesting thing about Venezuela, you know, um, this goes to this, this schizophrenic energy policy that the Biden administration has. They come after the U.S. oil gas producers for venting and flaring of methane. And they put they put a nine hundred dollar uh, per ton tax on us when we're doing the best we can to capture those fugitive emissions because we make money off of that. They they tax us at the same time they turn around and, and have just given the go ahead to Venezuela, who has the highest flaring intensity of all oil and gas producers in the world by a magnitude of 40. You know, the United States, we come in at about it's a, it's a metric that's called cubic meters per barrel. The United States comes in about three cubic meters per barrel of what the flaring, what the emissions would be. Venezuela is at 40. That's how dirty it is. And yet they turn out and say, yeah, please, please put another 500,000 barrels a day back into the system. And, and again, it's this schizophrenic energy policy This and foreign policy as well. Yeah.
0: It is mind-numbing. The I don't think we've had a chance to talk since this article came out. We had an article last week that the Biden administration has offered the fewest offshore oil and gas leases in the history of the United States. Uh, New York Times had it. We had it. Uh, it's not in dispute. It's a real number. Uh, that doesn't have an impact literally this moment, uh, but the five-year trend lines for energy production in the United States are only going to be forced down by this uh, lack of exploration that it's permitting around the country, is that right?
3: Absolutely. You know, uh, uh, the statistic we always use is about the federal oil and gas assets that that's going into the system every single day is about 10% of what we do. It's about a million barrels a day and a big portion of that's the Gulf. Uh, those Gulf plays are very different because those wells are so expensive and so high risk but they're also very, very prolific. And what the administration has done is, the way I describe it is, uh, they have they have gone ahead and, and they've been required by Congress to have an offshore leasing program. They wouldn't do it if it weren't for the IRA bill, where they tied offshore wind to to oil and gas leases, so what they've done is they've offered the absolute bare minimum that allows them to meet the the letter of the law in areas that are not particularly interested by the industry to to go out and explore. Uh, and essentially, they've taken what the industry thinks is the more lucrative and potentially higher producing. Uh, areas and have not offered them for leases and offered up frankly garbage. And that's the big problem. And what that does is that creates a I call it a donut hole in the, the leasing and the production process. When you sit idle for several you know several months and don't get anything, then the industry gets behind. And so you're absolutely right. It will create we won't we won't see it in the short term, but ten years down the road we're gonna be a significant shortfall in US production. But in the terms of you know millions of barrels that, uh, compared to what we're doing right now. It's really frightening that way as well.
0: It's unthinkable. We're literally handicapping the next generation of Americans with the decisions we're making today. And uh, it's so obvious, and it's so obviously against the American interest in this turbulent world, but it seems like there is no uh, stopping what, what the Biden administration is going to do. I want to pivot to another area because I think more in the last month than at any time since I've been a journalist, there seems to be an awakening in the general populace, and even in the news media, and certainly even among policymakers, that the electric vehicle revolution is has the cart before the horse in a really big way. Uh, there are uh, reports in New Mexico Colorado of electric bills going up because of the cost of charging vehicles. Uh, there are all sorts of concerns about um, grid incapabilities certainly flowing from the failed energy secretary um, cross-country travel with an EV that didn't work out too well for her. Uh, there are clear uh, statements now, even Democrats saying the grid can't handle this. We don't have a pollution strategy for the batteries. We don't have a mineral strategy or, or or rare minerals for the batteries. This is the first time where I think collectively many people who for the longest time advocated electric vehicles have cried uncle saying, uh, we're not really ready for what we started. Is that Uh, a sustainable moment and if so what's the solution what do we do to take advantage of that to make sure that corrective action is going to be taken rather than just look at it and cry over spilt milk
3: well uh uh, you know i think a lot about this because you know i've complained to you repeatedly ad nauseum about my experience with my electric vehicle uh and and uh that's why I'm, I have my wife drive it because I don't have to complain about it anymore. But um, you know, John, it, there's whenever there's an, an adaptive technology that comes in, there's this period that's called the trough of. Uh, Uh, disillusionment, okay? And that's where the early adopters grab in. Uh, They jump in and they talk about how great a a new technology is. But then you go through the cycle and you realize, well, it's maybe not as great because the promises have always been much greater than the actual deliverability. And I think where we're at right now, the U.S. automakers are seeing, uh, being being forced to move towards this very, very broad adaptation of technology where there's a lot of disillusionment with it. And I think EV owners themselves are saying, "Well, this was a nice thought, but I'm not going to do another one." I know that we're not going to buy another EV for, for that, exactly the reasons you just laid out. The the infrastructure still is not there, and the reliability still isn't there. And I'd much rather just be able to to do something I'm familiar with. I think we've got a lot of problems associated that just are are, are just starting to come out. You know, the you talked about I uh, uh, talked about energy prices. And, um, we're seeing that all across the country where, where electricity, which was always just something that you didn't pay much attention to. You just paid your electric bill. All of a sudden, people are starting to see those prices creep up significantly because the utilities themselves have started to increase the renewable energy portfolio, which is always a magnitude, a much more expensive source of electricity generation than natural gas or coal or things they've been used to. And that is passed on to consumers, just like every other government mandate that's passed on to consumers. And that's really starting to bite people in, in the wallet. And I think uh, you know we're we're entering this really interesting uh, period of time where you look at the the automaker strike, and that's really starting to to call to attention that the automakers are being forced to manufacture something that the consumers don't want. At a much higher price than the the automakers can actually afford to make the vehicle. It's basically a forced bankruptcy. It's a mandated bankruptcy that the the Biden administration has put the automakers through. And nobody wins in that circumstance. So, you know, from the industry's perspective, we talk a lot about EVs. I think the missed opportunity from my end, and I will take blame for this because we don't talk about enough, is, is, well, look, what's the happy happy medium here? And it's it's a gas hybrid. Everybody that I've talked to, everybody that owns a gas hybrid, you know, uh, loves it because it gives them maximum flexibility and they can either virtue signal or just, you know, put around town and, and not have to put gas in their car for, for six weeks. I think from the industry's perspective, we need, on, on my end, we need to be supporting the, the auto manufacturers more on, on moving towards those type of models. And that, that sort of accomplishes. A number of purposes, but more than anything, it actually allows for reliability and affordability.
0: It is pretty remarkable to understand, and you know, I think there's a lot of good intention people, and there's also a lot of good intentioned interest in the cars. They look cool, and but if you don't build the infrastructure for them, all you're doing is setting up for failure, and that's literally what we've created here in America now. I, I was in a um, Uber the other day, and the the guy had a Tesla. And I'm sitting in the back seat and I said, hey, why do you like the car? I said, oh, it is so cool. It's high tech. But I got to tell you, it is a pain in the blank to try to charge it. If I use my home charger, it takes like 48 hours. I sometimes have to drive 14, 17, 18 miles and try five different locations to find an available charger. It costs me nine bucks to charge, even at a half fill. It's so much easier to put a hose from the gas tank in and do it. I really have buyer's remorse. I mean, I like the experience but it, it's just become a personal aggravation and it's affecting my career. You know, I, I, there are days where I haven't been able to drive because I'm waiting for my car to charge. So, yeah, shocking. yeah.
3: It, it is really interesting. It is shocking. And, and it, this is like that is sort of the, the Biden energy policy summarized right now. Uh, I got a, a, a Tesla a great vehicle but using my tesla is not always practical. and i tell people look the, the biden on if you're talking bidenomics and energy policy you summarize it to say which is to your point you take most expensive energy which is electricity right now and you have it be generated by the least reliable and most heavily subsidized source which is wind and solar. and then you then you heavily subsidize the most and the most expensive and least reliable form all the way through 2060. so we're looking at 40 years ahead of us. then you take away everybody's choice and you mandate everything. And everybody has to rely that they have to rely on this most expensive form of energy. And then you push it down into their homes, which you and I talk about all the time as well, furnaces and gas stoves and things like that. And then, you know, you do this without the infrastructure in place, to your point, because the infrastructure is not there to actually meet the demand to supply this most expensive form of Electricity, And while you're at it, you rely on China for all the manufacturing capacity to get yourself there. And you sit back and you sit back and you feel good about yourself because how morally superior you are to everybody else who uses fossil fuels. And that's really the Biden energy policy right there. Uh, it's
0: unfortunate. So. It is. And there isn't one ounce of common sense in that linear argument you put there. It's literally the, 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 the defiance of common sense. Even if you had the good intention that, hey, I want to make a transition someday, and I don't doubt the intentions of some of these folks that they they think they're doing right, they're just pursuing it in the most haphazard and circular, cost-ineffective way I've ever seen any government policy roll out. And um, and they're going to harm their long-term cause. There's no no doubt about it.
3: One one sorry, sorry sorry, John. One final thing for your listeners. Okay. Let's just talk about how we get from here to there in terms of where you create where you generate the electricity to get it to your Tesla owner's garage. Okay. It means we have to grow the high voltage transmission system by 57%. That's gonna take 80 years. The DOE says that we need 57% growth in high voltage transmission. The big lines that you see ride driving down the interstate. Right now we have two hundred and forty thousand miles of, of HV transmission lines. We've got to get. We got to build 1,700 miles. Right now, we build 1,700 miles of high voltage transmission lines per year. At this rate, we've got to build 136,000 miles. It's going to take us 80 years to get from here to there, just to get the energy from the places generated to your Tesla owner's garage. They've, we've been sold a bill of goods, and um, it's expensive. You know, where are we going to get the linemen? just to build that. You know, we don't have the workforce to do we don't. that. We We have a hard time
0: so, staffing a restaurants right now. Yeah. It's yeah exactly. And yeah. No, no, yeah. It's, uh, so, so uh, in inward from this, there are the macro energy policies, which we've already talked about, uh, the uh, withholding drilling permits, uh, shifting and empowering dirtier and less uh, trustworthy regimes to sell oil to the world instead of us. Uh, but as you move energy policy closer, and closer inward obviously electric vehicles, the subsidies, and other things putting the cart before the horse, the most palpable thing that I think a lot of people are feeling right now is what is going to be dictated in their home, their casa, their their castle. The, the one place where we've always said the government doesn't come in here. That's one of the great things about the Constitution, but now they are. They're going to determine your mixer, your battery charger. Your uh, overhead uh, ceiling fan, uh, your dryer, your gas stove, which was where we started our conversation on this, was about a year ago. Uh, the the awakening of Americans that the choices that they've had in the one place where they always felt their choice was supreme, really becoming palpable that they're not going to have the choices. They have today because of government regulation. Um, Is that moving? How is it? Give us an update on handsoffmystove.com and the people there and just the larger push. I think we did a list the other day. It's like 113 appliances, 115 appliances are on some form of government regulatory agenda right now for the Biden administration.
3: Yeah, and it ranges for everything from gas stoves and furnaces to ceiling fans to Ironically, refrigerated vending machines that they're looking at things like that. So, you know, if you go downstairs to get your your diet, Dr. Pepper for the afternoon jolt, you know, they're they're looking at things like that. It's been really interesting. I'm going to put my political hack uh, hat on here for a minute if I could. And it's been interesting now that we're coming into, you know, we're 14 months away from a presidential election, how quiet they've been just in the last few months, you know, in the in the springtime when this was really starting to get traction, uh, they are going full bore, they they wanted to do this. And now they realize that, that publicly, they've got to remain quiet because they know the public is not on their side. And so what we're watching very carefully is actually the rollout of the regulations themselves. And when they go to the final rulemaking and then they go to the implementation of that rule for the appliance manufacturers and for the, the homeowners and things like that, um, they're gonna be very, very quiet about it because they know how unpopular these decisions and these mandates are going to be. We we see I, I would I would predict, honestly, you know, when when COP twenty eight happens, you know, the, the International Climate Conference administration goes over, they always go overseas, and then they roll out these series of announcements to show how committed the US and the Biden administration is to meeting climate and net zero goals. And so i think they're being very quiet until cop 28 actually happens then they're going to dump everything and then go back uh, and hide again until after the election but that's what we're anticipating that's going to be uh that's going to be an avalanche of of regulation regulatory announcements that they will they, they will get credit for in the international community come back try and implement without getting the political um getting chopped up politically for it so we're ready, getting ready for this uh, this onslaught, and it's going to be it's going to be tough. But we, you know, frankly, the, what I really appreciate is you giving me the opportunity to talk to you and and everybody who listens to you to just bring this to their attention because it does get right down into our homes. And I think you know we're going to do an all encompassing approach with hands off my house, hands off my home, instead of hands off my stove because it's everything. It's in just there.
0: gotten so much bigger so quickly. And you know, the first time we talked about the stove. I remember this clear as day. You said, listen, it's not going to stop at the stove, right? That's a starting point. And you could not have been more prophetic about it. I mean, basically, when I looked at that list the other day that we put out on the site, I mean, it's everything. I think even mixers or, you know, small kitchen appliances have a regulatory fiat against it now. And, uh, boy, you hit that one right on the head. And it just it feels what's, personal. What's the
3: scripture? Yeah, what the scripture was, a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Because at the time, <laughs> you know, I was trying to... I was out there you know, in the wilderness and dressed in, in uh, you know, fat cloth and ashes and nobody was <laughs> nobody was thinking, I thought I was serious. And I said I was a conspiracy theory. theorist, and now, we're 64 and 0 between you
0: and me, right? So Pretty amazing. And it's so important for people to understand. Again, uh, sometimes you look at these regulators and I understand they think they're doing good, but they're, they're er- eradicating one of the great liberties that we have, which is the choices that we make in our home. And if you have to regulate Uh, your best ideas into action because you can't get the American people to come along. You never get long-term compliance with that. And I think that's the, the full, foolishness that the Biden green energy people don't realize that they're never going to force this sort of willingness. You've got to sell it because it works or Americans are too pragmatic. And right now, uh, they're, they're, they're getting that pushback. Uh, for folks, if you want to join up now before it becomes hands off my home, uh, just go to hands off my stove. I joined a long time ago. I love it. I get a weekly email. It is an incredible program of like-minded people like you and me, common sense people. Uh, we're not, you know, we're not trying to be silly. We're just trying to be common sense. And uh, hands off my stove is an incredible movement of people just trying to have a conversation with regulators that says, "Hey, I get to decide what's in my home. You don't." Let's let's have that conversation. And Tim has set this for thousands of people are joining, uh, and uh, the weekly resource, the information that Tim and his team puts together. Really valuable. I'm so much smarter every time I read the email. So go to sign up today. It costs a buck a month. You can't even get a cheap coffee for that anymore. So go do that and, uh, and join the army of Americans that are saying, "Hands off my stove!" And soon, "Hands off my home." Tim, it is always an honor to have you on. These are such consequential times, and uh, energy policy is really our security and our economic security. Uh, and you help make it so much more understandable. It's a real honor to have these conversations.
3: Great to be with you, John. And again, uh, you're on the Lord's errand. I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to visit. And and I I can't help but think your listeners are probably some of the best educated on these issues because of the uh, the quality of people and the breadth and breadth of the issues. So thanks for having me on. I really do appreciate it.
0: Well, we enjoy it. And I look forward to this conversation every time. In fact, if it goes a couple weeks hey, where's Tim? I want to get, get Tim on. So we, we love having you. You're, you're such a great resource for all of us in the country. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. A big thank you to all three of our guests, Mike Huckabee, James Carafano, and of course, Tim Stewart. A lot of really thoughtful conversation and factually based information. We give you the facts. We let you make up your mind. You can't get better than Huckabee, Carafano, and Stewart to give you some new information that you can base good decisions on keep an eye on just the news we'll have it covered day and night if you want to join the fight against the war on appliances go today and sign up at handsoffmystove.com buck a month you join the citizen army it's pretty cool actually they're doing really great things all right we got a great show tomorrow and on sunday we got a lot going on so and saturday sunday we're gonna have ron desantis on for the whole hour You can hear his policy agenda. Yeah, he's a far distant second. Looks like Donald Trump's going to sew this up. But Ron DeSantis has some ideas, and it's always good to make an informed decision after you've heard all the candidates you've heard from Trump, you've heard from Burgum, you've heard from Vivek Ramaswamy, you can hear from DeSantis. Hopefully, we'll get Nikki Haley and Tim Scott as well, and we'll round out that great crowd so you can have six of the top folks in America before you decide. So we'll have all that. Until then, God bless you, and have a great night. IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Just News. That's TNUSA.com slash Just News. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion. Hunter Biden and the security and intelligence failures that preceded.